Welcome to a special episode of Main Street Mesa. On the evening of September 7th, Rail Mesa put together a forum with three local experts to talk about housing in Mesa and what it means to our community. Our intention was to keep the entire event to an hour, and we mostly kept to that promise. The forum was held inside the East Valley Institute of Technology's Culinary Arts Building in the Jacaranda Room. The event hall had about 100 chairs set up facing a small stage with a projector screen and the American and Arizona flags on either side. Attendees received a copy of the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco's book, What Matters? Investing in Results to Build Strong, Vibrant Communities. This book is actually a collection of essays trying to answer the question, what does it take to measure and fund positive social change? We thought this was an important topic along the light rail corridor. The book features a collection of essays by 80 authors with wide expertise on the social, cultural, and financial implications of orienting programs and funding around outcomes. If you're interested in getting your own copy, you can order one online for free from the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco. Attendees also received a little handout we call the Rail Development Activity Report, which showcases a variety of projects that are either under construction, completed, or in development along Mesa's Light Rail Corridor. Mesa's Light Rail Corridor is the hub of culture and development in Mesa, featuring world-class arts, restaurants, employment, and more. The corridor has seen significant revitalization and continued investment. Since 2008, Mesa's Light Rail Corridor has seen more than a half a billion dollars in investments in transportation, retail, residential, education, manufacturing, global logistics, arts, and culture. We had help from our wonderful moderator, Michael Rode. Michael is the founding director of the Center for Performance and Civic Practice and the Sojourn Theater Company. Rode has worked around the nation to design and lead theater-based community-engaged participatory projects and processes focused on social practice, civic practice, and local capacity building. He is a former faculty member at Northwestern University and held the Doris Duke Artist Residency at Chicago's Looking Glass Theater Company. As Institute Professor, Rode will teach and work as part of the Ensemble Lab, a think tank and platform for experimenting and collaborating with artists, scholars, and community leaders from around the world to creatively address issues within and beyond the arts and the academy. Some of our presenters had PowerPoint presentations, which you can find on the RAIL website. Let's head over to EVIT now and the event, which is just now getting started. All right, welcome. Uh, my name is David Crumming, and I'm Jen Duff. Thank you for coming tonight and this important topic. Uh, we want to introduce a little bit about what we are, or who we are at RAIL. We're founded in 2012, a group of us who cared passionately about MESA and its development, had ideas and opinions, and we started forming and we decided we need to become one voice. And so we started in my living room. And then we grew to inside the bungalow and then the Queens and now we're at Bolstead. We meet every month on the fourth Wednesday at 6 p.m. And we, we talk about various subjects around the growth development and- um, Along the light rail corridor. Along the light rail corridor. So RAIL stands for Retail Arts Innovation Livability, and um, the idea was just to focus on what, what is downtown Mesa and the light rail corridor? What are our core uh, 
what, what's really working and where can we go? And you know, we have one of the most livable areas and we have a, a, a vibrant retail scene that's growing in downtown Mesa. Arts has been central for, uh, I think, more than 100 years in Mesa. Um, and we're a pretty innovative organization um, as, a, as a group of humans that have formed together here south of the Salt River. Um, and so our focus is on our diverse local economy, um, safe and attractive neighborhoods, healthy and resilient community. Uh, resilience, my favorite word, come talk to me afterwards for what that means. Um, an engaged, educated, and empowered community. And so this is one of our events that we wanted to, to host to, to look at that. And so our focus in the next couple years is on building deeper roots in Mesa. Uh, a lot of times it feels like we're a very disconnected community, but we know that our roots are deep, and so we need to deepen our roots so we stay here. Um, how, many have, how many people grew up in Mesa and knows friends that moved away and haven't come back? jerks. <laughs> we don't want our roots to go away. We want them to stay here because that's part of a resilient community. Um, and the other part of that is stronger relationships and building relationships beyond what we have right now because we know that communities that have deep roots and strong relationships, what's the best way to get a job? Talk to someone who knows where a job is. Better than a job board. Um, so those types of things means that if you lose your job or something happens in your life, that means that you can bounce back faster and better. And then the last part is greater knowledge. Um, I like to say that the, the biggest revelation I've ever had in my life is how little I know. And, uh, and then the next revelation I had after that was, whoa, like a year ago I thought I knew nothing. I learned a whole bunch of stuff and now I really know nothing because the book of what you don't know, of course, is that much bigger. Um, and with that, I want to introduce our panel. So our moderator is Michael Rode. Hi. Yeah. Um, he seemed like he was waiting for applause. That I, I don't know <laughs> what I was doing. Um, and then we have Mark Stapp from ASU's WP Carey Master of uh, Real Estate Development. Now you have to applaud for um, we have Deirdre Pfeiffer from ASU School of Geographic Sciences and Urban Planning, and John Ford from Vitalist Health Foundation. And with that, I'm not going to talk anymore. All right, I'm going to take it. Thank you, David. Hi, everyone. Um, I'm Michael. I'm a theater artist, and I do a lot of work at the intersection of uh, art and community projects. Moved here from Chicago a year and a half ago. Um, I've been getting to know the Valley um, uh, a lot, particularly through events like this. I'm really happy to help uh, host the conversation. And before we move on to presentations, I wanted to find out, we had a first question. So who here lives in Mesa now? Okay. So who here uh, was born in Mesa? Who here's lived in Mesa a significant part of your adult life? And um, can I ask really quick, because the time we've been given tonight is um, ridiculously short to cover such a complex topic with so many people in the room who, frankly, a lot of you could just speak on this for a while yourselves from lots of kinds of experiences. Uh, I want to know, can you give those of us who are up here to begin with a sense of why you came tonight? Is there something particularly you came to hear or to ask? And these are literally 10 seconds or less. 
So it's not start the evening with a story, although we'll get there. Why'd you come, Kevin? Uh, I, came, I came to listen to these speakers, particularly Deirdre, Mark, David, and John. Probably John. John. Awesome. Can't the attractive. Let's say attractive. Why else did folks show up tonight? You could be doing a lot of things on a Thursday night. I work about 30 miles north of here and I feel very disconnected from my community and just looking for uh, opportunities to get more involved and network and try to fill out work where I live. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for coming tonight. Why'd you come? Um, Here you go. Thank you. Um, I'm from the uh, Washington Escobedo uh, historic neighborhood, and we're in the process of um, partnering with um, people in the city to uh, establish rezoning in laws within our, our neighborhood. And so, really interested to be able to connect with city members and also um, uh, construction workers and, and other people who would be interested in helping uh, the neighbors in the neighborhood in our revitalization project. Thanks. Who else came? Just a couple, there's one, and then we'll go right here. Go ahead. So I'm on the Mesa School Board, and, and this is intriguing to me because uh, we're working with, at the school district, a very diverse group of students. And I'm looking forward to understanding and hearing from the experts uh, what we're gonna do in the community to improve that so that we can ultimately improve our schools. That's what I'm, that's what I'm working towards. Thank you so much. I'm here because I've been an active member of RAIL since 2014, and I recently joined the City of Mesa's Human Relations Advisory Board. So I try to get as much information as I can about City of Mesa events and activities so I can be a more informed and helpful board member. Anybody else who are like, uh, nobody's, there you go, right though, too. Yep. I'm Brian Paul. I'm with uh, TLC. Our home base is here. We are the largest network of halfway houses in the Southwest. This is our home base. This is home right there on Main in McDonald. We've been here for years. We're here to offer our services to help with the homeless, those that are suffering from alcoholism, and those that are drug addicts, and to kind of, kind of help clean up the streets and get those lives set straight. We're helping out. Thank you for being here and for sharing that. And right in front of you. Yeah. I'm a member of the Mesa Chamber of Commerce and the Mesa Ambassadors. And then uh, for work, I'm also a mortgage loan originator living at Mesa and just interested in what's happening. Thank you. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say thank you for, for sharing the reasons that you're here. And uh, a couple of folks said something about listening to the experts who are here tonight. And I want to say that as opposed to a traditional panel experience, we're going to do it a tiny bit different and work to sort of destabilize the idea of expertise and acknowledge that although there are some folks here who have spent a lot of time studying and learning about the thing that they're going to talk about, they have a lot of knowledge, there's also a lot of knowledge right here. Uh, and we want to make sure that we make space for that knowledge as well as this knowledge. So the way we're going to do that is with permission. Uh, I've been given permission that each of them will speak for five minutes to start, and only five minutes. And with their permission, I will cut them off at five minutes. So uh, we'll get to see what they can pack into five minutes. And at the end of each of them speaking five minutes, I'm going to ask them a question or two to sort of see if I can tease out some threads amidst what they have shared. And then we're going to turn to you and give you just a couple minutes to talk to a person or two next to you about what you have heard and think about what you would like to ask. And then what we're going to do is avoid the thing where one of you asks a question and they each talk for five more minutes. Instead, we're going to take maybe five, six, seven, eight questions from you at the same time, listen to a bunch of questions, let them look for threads, respond, come back to you, and so on. 
So we're going to try to make sure that there's an opportunity to hear from you as much as them, but of course also acknowledge that you're here partly to hear them, and they have things to offer as well. So with that said, we're going to start with the first person. Uh, we started at 7.08 p.m. I'm going to go until 8.08 p.m. Think about that as our one hour, and we understand if you have to leave at 8.00. My kids are in the lobby playing, so we'll see how I do until 8.08. Uh, and Ginger, how would you feel about going first? Or are we tacked up? Or teched up with Mark or John going first. Would you like to move this, John? Mark, can do that. John going John's over there. Mark doesn't even have a presentation. If you check the microphone, we can do it together. Oh. Let's see how we can do this. It's a duet. Okay. And the five minutes are about to start. You tell me when you're ready, sir. Our first presenter is Mark Stapp. Mark is a well-known expert in Phoenix area real estate. Mark teaches future real estate leaders at the highly ranked W.P. Carey School of Business at Arizona State University and has close to 40 years experience planning, designing, investing in, and developing a wide variety of projects across the Valley and the U.S. As the Freddie Taylor Professor of Real Estate at the W.P. Carey School, Mark is Executive Director of the popular one-year Master of Real Estate Development Program for Real Estate Professionals. He is a member of the International Council of Shopping Centers North American Research Task Force and serves as co-chair of its Academic Research Committee. He was named a Distinguished Fellow of the National Association of Industrial and Office Properties. Let's listen in to what he has to say. So what if I just stand here and say nothing? <laughs> then it would be a pleasant five minutes. You just started. All right. I just started. All right. All right. Time so, starts now. So I, I'm glad to be here. There's a lot of people in this audience that I know, which makes me frightened always because they're listening to me and they know better when I say something. Um, so David asked me to kind of give an overview on the housing market um, in, in five minutes, and that's kind of hard to do. And I focused on... Um, West Mesa, which is, I think, what your request was. And um, I was trying to understand, because I hadn't really looked at this area, I was trying to understand the impact of light rail on housing here. And there's a number of factors that influence housing, and I was trying to dissect them as quickly as I can. Um, but very quickly, you know, what happened to us from 2007 till 2010? And, um, you know, we had this tremendous economic shock that hit us. And it affected us in a number of different ways. And one of the ways it affected us was in our population here as well. And it began to affect the composition of our population also. And the composition of the population means that our housing needs also change. And as it relates to both the composition of the population and the economic effects, we begin to see um, how the housing market has been changing here in Metro Phoenix. So that's just looking at population change, and there's two Metro Phoenix. Um, one is from um, the, uh, the, the state, and then the other one, the red one is from the state, and the other one is uh, from MAG looking at population change. But you can see how we took a big dive, right, and then started to come back. Um, and I wanted to look also at the uh, population changes that were occurring over um, a period of time where we saw a lot of rapid growth. And you see that 91, 2001, a lot of growth. And, and look how we've, we've 
really slow down. And there's a reason for some of this slowdown in population growth here in Metro Phoenix, even though we see a lot of economic expansion. Um, and then trying to focus on West Mesa and housing. And I, I used as a proxy, because um, there's a lot of data, I used as a proxy rents um, and rental rates. I had actually every single house sales transaction from 2000 until last week, right? And started going through and I'm like, this is just like mind boggling too much, forget it. So I'm gonna stick with rents. And so I looked at these zip codes. I looked at 85202, 210, 201, 203, and I threw in 281. And the reason I threw 281 in there is because that's downtown 10B. Um, and there's a couple of important barriers here. And so as I looked at these changes, what you're gonna see here um, is rents in 2002 in the green dots, the darker the green dot, the higher the um, deviation from the mean of all of the rents in that year. So what that means is those are higher rents than the average, essentially. But I was also looking at the spatial distribution of these things. And so if you go to the next one, David, um, you begin to see what, and I was thinking when I started this, that I'm gonna see higher rents at higher prices south of the 60. Um, and you begin to see, obviously, at downtown Tempe, but look at what's happening um, east of the 101. And then, David, click it again. You have one minute left. Jesus. Um, okay, so here's, do the next one. Do, okay, do the next one, and we're done. So, but, go back one. So I'm gonna point something out. If you watch these, this progression of change, that area that's in the middle, right, where the light rail runs, we still have very low rents, right? And, and I was intrigued by that, because that's the opposite of what we expect to have happening with light rail. Um, so here is the average monthly rent per year for each one of those zip codes starting in 2002. And look how low the rents are in those areas that are most uh, directly related to light rail. Yeah, David. Um, and then this is percentage change. In the one, you, you see this green, that light green one? That's the one where the light rail runs right, right through it and then goes up. Um, to the north, that took a huge dive. And look what's coming back though, is 85201. That's, that's the one, so that's the purple one. Last 10 seconds. Okay, so, uh, so with that, I'm done, right? Housing market is very, very tight. Um, we've got uh, probably an existing home sales inventory of two months, which is ridiculously low for a metropolitan area like this. I just read a study this morning, Phoenix fell to number 17 on the affordability list. Okay, we have an affordability issue in this community and that's a big economic development problem. That's my five minutes. Thank you so much. Thank you. Did someone turn the lights down? Would it be okay if we put them back on? I feel like at this time of day, it's not a great idea to make the room down. I want to support your your wakefulness. And Deirdre, would you like to go? Just give him a moment. It was, was it hard to see it when the lights were up? Then keep them like they are. Thank you for saying that. Yeah. Yep. All right.
Okay. I'll just I'll just be loud and try to wake you up. Our second presenter is Deirdre Pfeiffer. Deirdre is an associate professor in the School of Geographical Sciences and Urban Planning at Arizona State University and a member of the American Institute of Certified Planners. Dr. Pfeiffer is a housing planning scholar with expertise on housing as a cause and effect of growing social inequality and the role of housing planning in meeting the needs of diverse social groups. Dr. Pfeiffer is also deeply committed to community partnerships to help solve pressing housing issues in the Valley. Her recent collaborators include the Arizona Partnership for Healthy Communities and the Arizona Housing Alliance's Mobile Housing Working Group. Let's head back to the event to hear Dr. Pfeiffer. Now I'm going to step you guys back and we're going to take a more big picture view of housing. I want everyone to take a moment and to think about a few aspects of your life. Think about the opportunities that you've had or not had. Like being able to go to college or bond with your grandma. Think about the places that mattered to you growing up, like where you went to middle school, or that neighborhood park, or that stretch of sidewalk where you learned to ride a bike, or where you went on your first date. These are all, all these experiences that are coming back to you um, from these references. These are ways that housing has affected your life. I want to tell you a little bit more about three ways that our homes affect our families and communities. And you can, yeah. First, housing as a source of wealth. Second, housing as a setting for family life. And third, housing as a point of access to resources and amenities. So let's first talk about housing as a source of wealth. Our housing is our greatest financial asset. About 64% of Americans own their homes, and the typical homeowner has a net worth that is many times greater than the typical renter, which you can see on this chart on the screen from the Federal Reserve. What our homes are worth are influenced by what is happening in our communities. When our neighbors and local governments invest in our communities, our home values and our wealth go up. We are able to use this wealth to take risks, like to send our kids to college or to start a business, um, which can have great financial rewards for us down the road. But when our neighbors and local governments divest in our communities, our home values and our wealth go down. The loss of wealth through our housing can have devastating effects on our families and communities, such as homelessness or increases in crime. Renters' wealth is also tied to their housing, and you can go to the next slide. Um, when our rent goes up but our income stagnates or, or declines, our wealth declines. When our rent stays the same or goes down, we're able to build wealth to weather crises, like buying a new car when our car breaks down. Renters' incomes have declined or stagnated over time, and rents are reaching unprecedented levels, um, as exaggerated by the cartoon that you guys see on the screen. Finding a place to rent that leaves enough money left over to pay for other expenses that we have in our life, let alone build wealth, oftentimes seems like winning the lottery. Now I want to transition and talk about housing as a setting for family life. I want you to close your eyes and think about the home that you grew up in or one of the homes that you've lived in as a child. And just take a moment and let some images from that home flood into your mind. Um, you may be thinking about holidays, like Thanksgiving dinner, or you know, watching TV in your room, or wrestling with your brothers and sisters on the sofa. Our homes are where we bond with our families and pass on our cultures and values to our children and grandchildren. Our cultural diversity is vast. Some of us live in noisy, multi-generational families, Others of us live quietly alone. Some of us live in large homes with many rooms and lots of privacy. 
and others of us live in more open air spaces uh, where much is shared and little is private, uh, like this yurt that you see up on the screen. We need to have the flexibility to adapt our homes in ways that allow for our families to thrive, such as building a guest home when grandma can no longer live alone. The burden for providing this flexibility, though, rests on our local and state governments who dictate how the land in our communities can be used. Finally, let's talk about housing as a point of access to resources and amenities. So a home is not only a source of wealth and a setting for family life, but also a point of access to a broader neighborhood and region. Where we live affects the air we breathe, the education we receive, the food we eat, and the jobs we can get. In this way, our ability to afford a home in a particular community dramatically affects our life chances, including our economic well-being, health, and our political power. So this map shows one house in Ahwatukee, uh, right near Ray Road and 48th Street. The residents of this home had access to high-performing public schools, abundant shopping opportunities, and a wealth of jobs through their proximity to the 10 interstate. A family's access to resources and amenities would be very different if we went out to Buckeye or you know, here in West Mesa. And our next speaker will continue on this theme and talk about how housing, um, how where you live and, and the home you live in affects your health. So in conclusion, you can go to the next slide. Housing is intricately tied to our wealth, our family well-being, and our opportunities. Many people feel that the ability to have a safe, decent, and affordable home should not be a privilege, but actually should be a human right. And conceiving of housing as a human right means taking greater care to ensure that all people have the housing that they need to thrive. Thanks for allowing me to share my perspectives on how housing matters to families and communities, and I look forward to our conversation. John. Five seconds. Thank you. You got five seconds. You want them? You can have five or five. <laughs> Thank you so much. I would never steal from you. Yeah. Our third and final presenter is John Ford. John is Vitalist Health Foundation's Communications Director, leveraging three decades of combined for-profit and non-profit experience to develop an expanded, innovation-centered network of stakeholders focused on all aspects of health and well-being. He continuously engages influencers, partners, and emerging sectors in furthering policy and systems change. He is particularly focused on fostering strong relationships that catalyze innovation. John helps to develop and produce all of Vitalist's online and offline media, ranging from websites and webinars to newsletters and publications. As a member of the leadership team, he continuously collaborates with colleagues, trustees, and community partners to help and execute the Foundation's strategies for improving community health. Let's head back to Evit to hear from John. All right, so I have no slides, so um, pay attention. All right, so here it is. Here it is. I got five minutes. I'm going to do this in 30 seconds. Housing is health. Period, stop, end of story. Housing is health. Now, I can start with Maslow's hierarchy if you want, right? Everybody, everybody, I actually looked it up to make sure I had this right, okay? So uh, Maslow's hierarchy, I thought it started with food, clothing, and shelter. It doesn't. It actually starts with, uh, let's see here, uh, food, water, warmth, rest, security, and safety. Aren't those all descriptions of housing? Pretty close, right? Think about your own life, that place you lay your head every night. Isn't that not exactly the foundational, pun intended, foundational place for your well-being? And that's what we're talking about here, by the way. And I want to be clear about this, because I'm going to do a little mind-reading exercise. If you all could close your eyes real quickly. 
I'm going to say one word, and then I want you to just blurt out the next word that comes to your mind. Health. Some of you are more involved than others, but most people say healthcare, doctor, hospital. Then I do it again, right? Wait, this time I'm going to read your mind. And you're saying, I should exercise more, I should lose weight. <laughs> this is the issue. In, in our world, we think, we have, we have this paradigm that says health is healthcare and personal responsibility, and what we're ignoring is the entire world around us and its effect on our health. And that big moment where it all occurs is the place where we live, in, in our homes. In our housing. Uh, I'm not going to go into a lot of details, but uh, our partners at the Arizona Partnership for Healthy Communities, uh, which is at ArizonaHealthyCommunities.org, just put out this piece called Place Matters. You see it's got a cool infographic that really lays out like the, the main issues of housing. And, and it ties them to health care, but it also ties them to health. Like families who have trouble paying for housing, like Deirdre talked about and Mark was talking about with inventory, 84% more likely to delay necessary medical care. 116% more likely to postpone purchasing needed medications. That's before you factor in the fact that that housing budget is killing them in terms of their ability to buy healthy foods. Uh, often it's a choice between the rent and the utilities, right? All these things hinder our basic needs and our basic ability to be healthy. For some reason my phone is going nuts. It's not you, is it? All right. Um, I can't text <laughs> I should have known. Um, our, other, our other friends at Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, which is a national health foundation, uh, the Johnson is uh, Johnson & Johnson, talks about there are three ways to look at housing and health. Um, the first is the housing environment itself. We cannot forget that. The air quality indoors, mold in the house, basic living situation, temperatures, right? Um, and then two other factors that I can't read at the moment. Hold on a second. They are... The neighborhood factors, which Deirdre touched upon, right? What do you have access to? And that includes things like health, healthy, fresh foods. That includes access to parks and recreation. And then when you go out to the outer ring, assuming that all those factors hold, you have to take into account housing affordability. And all these things are direct indicators. I can look at, I can look at what you have access to from your home, and I can tell you your propensity to be healthy. I can look at how much you pay as a percentage of your income to housing needs, and I can, I can start to predict what your life expectancy can be. These things are possible because they are intricately uh, intertwined with each other. How much time is left? 75 seconds. All right, it's a gift to all of you. 75 seconds. <laughs> let's, let's have a conversation. Yeah. Can I ask if you have any time here? Come on. Yeah, can we thank so I, what I would like to do is, I have, a, a, I guess, two questions, having heard you, that I'm interested to ask you each. Uh, and the lights would be great if, if they could come up, that would be possible. Um, and I want to especially connect this idea of, um, of health, and you talked about housing in a way as a human right. And you had a moment when you were speaking, Deirdre, where you asked us to close our eyes and think about the place we grew up in and sort of frame that as a positive. And I, and I wanted to note that that I, I'm sure I'm not the only one. Like, actually, if I close my eyes and think about the house I grew up in, um, it's, it's actually not a good thing. Like, I want to open my eyes and come away from there because that's not the place that... And, and I want to use that to sort of get at how trauma, both community trauma, uh, social trauma, and individual family trauma fits into the way the three of you 
uh, sort of think about housing trends and our collective responsibility to uh, provide housing, support housing. And I want to ask you that first because then I want to ask you a question that's a little more about politics, not national politics, but kind of how things work. But, but how does this idea of, because of, um, there's a lot of notions about safety and, and the joy of it and the health of it, but our communities here all over this state and in many places uh, are dealing with a lot of traumatic disruptions around this issue. So how does that play into the way you think about these issues? Maybe no more than a minute from each person, if that's okay. Do you want to start? So, so this plays directly into, I mean, we, this is supposed to be about housing. Is everybody's here? Oh. <laughs> Safety, right there. Uh, so this place, I mean, this was supposed to be about housing, but you really can't do any of this stuff in a vacuum. And, and when it comes down to it, and what you're talking about, by the way, in the health world, we call adverse childhood experiences, right? And these are things that, that sorry, sorry to tell you, will shorten your life. Yeah, yeah. Right? yeah. And, and they, they impact you dramatically. Yeah. Um, and that's at the that's at the household level, yeah. but those things happen at the community level. Right. They, they you know so just just as a real quick example, the CDC just the other day, one of the biggest public health challenges in the world has been uh, how do you reduce disparities between uh, African Americans and whites? And a study just came out that showed it actually is closing amongst the 55 to 64 age group. And the CDC concluded that's because it's the first generation of African Americans to live in the era of civil rights. So they're getting more educational opportunity, more economic opportunity, more societal acceptance. So who would have known that civil rights was a health intervention? But it is, right? So educational opportunity, economic opportunity, housing, parks, safety, social justice, social and cultural cohesion, they all work together, which is this model that you can't see because I didn't bring slides. They all work together to, to impact health. So. That was more than a minute, sorry. No, it's great, thank But you. I had 75 seconds. You did. Okay. It's true, you, you banked your, your time. You did. That's did. very smart, <laughs> yeah. very smart, <laughs> yeah. Um I'm gonna follow on, um, I got the boring part of this, right? I, I had to talk about some statistics and stuff like that, and that's not really what my interest is. My interest is in communities, and you can't separate the house from the community. Um, so context matters a lot. And when we talk about placemaking, we're talking about Context, context for where we live, context for where we work, context for everything that we do in our life. And resiliency has to do with social networks and social systems and how housing fits into those things is important to how people aspire and live and deal with trauma, deal with these things, right? So there was an interesting study that looked at the neighborhoods in New York City um, and how they responded to Hurricane Sandy. In those neighborhoods that had extremely well-defined formal and informal social networks, okay, recovered very fast. Those who didn't, okay, continued to struggle for, for very long periods of time. And it's because it's not curbs, gutter, sewer, and sidewalk that makes communities. It's people, and it's those, those systems in those support organizations that make, even if you've got the greatest housing in the world, right. you could have the crappiest life. And so that is one of the most important things we can do is focus on those social systems. Mm -hmm. Thanks for that. Yeah, well, I'll just um, extend a bit about what both of you said. First, what John, what John was saying in part was that trauma is long-lasting. So trauma that you might experience through your housing could have you know, lifelong effects on your health, like the stress of living in a high crime neighborhood. There's a lot of research showing how that stress 
you know, affects your cardiovascular health and other systems later in life. Um, one thing, and then the trauma is not just, you know, health related, but there's also financial trauma. I mean, the foreclosure crisis here in the Valley, oh my gosh. You know, so many families lost so much of their wealth in that crisis, and, and this is wealth that's very hard to recover that's going to affect generations. And, um, but what I'll say is I'll provide a little upside related to um, Mark, is that we can think of, you know, we should think about housing, you know, how do we um, construct housing in ways, you know, allow people to live in housing in ways that enables those social support systems. And I think of multi-generational housing. So, you know, allowing for families to live multi-generationally enables them to weather, you know, the hard times better sometimes than living apart. Um, and whether or not families can live multi-generationally often is determined by what local zoning codes allow. So, my two cents. Thank you. I'm, I'm going to ask them one more question and then turn it to you. Um, I want to ask a question about um, politics, maybe little p politics, so not personalities or parties for this moment, but politics in terms of how things get done within systems. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm wondering from each of your vantage points at a moment when there's certainly a lot of governmental dysfunction on many levels and a lot of um, issues around care and how we experience care from the systems in which we participate. And I wonder, as you think about your own kind of journey as working in this field, as caring about health, as knowing about housing, um, can you give us a snapshot of sort of where we are in terms of systems caring for us as individuals and communities in relation to housing right now? John? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, did he tee that up well for which, you? Which one of the ten things should I say now? Yeah, I know. Uh, you know, I, here's the thing about politics, and, and this has been the journey that our foundation has been on. Uh, we, when we first got involved, we were like, well, we only have so much money, we should probably spend it at the top. We should probably go and look at systems and really get engaged with healthcare systems and the state legislature and work on federal policy. And you know what we ran into was a big freaking wall and got nothing done. Or if we got some things done, it was ephemeral because with the change of administration, it was gone. Okay? So then we tried the state legislature. That, quite frankly, didn't work out so well either. Uh, and what we learned by about 2000, 2002, was that the action was in communities. The action is there, and, and, and the funny thing that happened there was, we said, now we're going bottom up. We get communities all excited, and the next thing you know, we start running into cities, right? And I just want to say this about cities. We should all love our cities, and we should all value our city government. But please <clears throat> make your leaders aware, and be aware yourself, that if you're in a position of governance, your job is to say no. That's the set, that's the job you're given. You're supposed to enforce ordinances and you're supposed to, you know, do things with laws and you know you're supposed to talk about zoning and what's it. So our job as citizens is to try to at least get the maybe. Or could you look the other way while I do this? <laughs> or something that because here's what happens is once something happens that's good, you can no longer unsee it. And then everybody goes, Oh yeah, that was the right idea. Light rail is exhibit A. It took 30, 40 years for light rail to come to, to the Phoenix metro area. And then three years after it's built, they're tripling the track. No problem, right? Because once you see it, you can't unsee it. So I, I can't agree more, okay? I would almost ignore the legislature. Um, before I say anything, I usually look up what you said previously. I get to say it. Um, but, you know, it has to happen at the community level. That's those informal, formal networks. Um, 
In, you're, you're absolutely right. You look at the impediment to doing the things that we all identify as the right thing to do, and you find that there's some traffic engineer or some building safety person, and those are important because people die if you don't take care of some of those things, but sometimes they're just anal, and they're crazy, and they preclude something from happening. And so you have to have leadership that can take those issues to task. And that's the only way you're, you're, you're gonna make progress. When you look at what's happened around light rail, and you look at what's happened in this community in general, you realize, and, and I say this all the time, the, uh, we have no natural disasters here, right? That's an economic development uh, mantra for us. Um, and I tell people the only natural disaster we have is our legislature. And, and, and so where has all of the good work been done? And it's been done at the local level. You almost don't even want to go to the legislature. And at the local level, because our municipalities, unlike cities back east, our municipalities are gigantic. And it's so hard to get things done at a city level because the, there's such big geographies. you got to do it at the neighborhood level. Okay, well, I'll, I'll just um, put a little bit of caution here. So I agree that it's the era of the bottom-up, you know, the rising communities taking charge. But communities often have competing interests and competing needs and can hurt one another. And so, you know, they're in, you know, NIMBYism. This is not in my backyardism. It's kind of the classic case of that. You know, one community opposing something that might benefit another community. Um, so, you know, I would just caution say there is a role, you know, for local government, for sure, you know, but also regional government, um, you know, higher levels of government within our state and, and helping to mediate some of these competing needs that communities have that they're advocating for. Okay. Good point. Perfect point. Thanks. Yeah. Um, I, I want to ask a small favor. Uh, if you would look around you to someone who you didn't know when you got here and just, like, shake their hand and introduce yourself, please. Somebody you didn't know when you got here. Lorenzo's like, no one's near me. <laughs> All right, now, here's, here's what I'd like to ask. Um, the person who you just introduced you're like, yourself to, no one near me. the person you just introduced yourself to, uh, and that might be two or three people, I'm going to give you three minutes or so to talk to that person or the couple people around you about what you've heard so far tonight, in particular, what you've heard that's interesting to you and that you might want to ask a question about. So I'm giving you about three minutes to talk to that stranger or two. What have you heard so far that's interesting and what might you want to ask a question about? Three minutes are yours. Include a stranger in your conversation. After about five minutes of interpersonal discussion, we got back on the mic. As Michael asked the audience for the questions, he tried to repeat them back. We've left the tape uncut because you can mostly hear the complete questions from the audience. Let's listen to what the audience has been thinking and get response and thoughts from our panel. Uh, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to interrupt and I apologize because I imagine I could, you could just keep having this conversation. Uh, we wanted to acknowledge something and then ask you a question. Uh, in a conversation about housing and all the issues that we're talking about, which include issues of, uh, issues of equity, issues of affordability, issues of diversity, we wanted to note that like we're four white folks up here, sort of who've been invited to kind of sit at the front of the room and talk about these things in a community that is far more diverse than the four of us uh, are. And we just wanted to sort of acknowledge 
that uh, presence and complication in any conversation. It doesn't just happen here. That kind of dynamic will happen frequently, uh, but it's a dynamic that bears noting in this conversation. Um, so that said, we want to sort of grab a couple, a bunch of questions from you, not to go straight into answering, but to hear, and I'm going to ask you to help me listen to the ones that you particularly feel like, oh, I, I can really respond to that. So, can I just have, like, from different groups, what's a question? What's a question that you're talking about? What's a question, Kevin? Um, I want to know from health and real estate guys yep. what the metrics are hmm. of a, an equitable community. Great. From a health and real estate point of view, what are the metrics of an equitable community? So, we're going to keep that in the mix right now. Great. Just to talk a little bit about some of the data that was pointed out at first, where at least in Mesa, along the light rail, property values seem to go down more than the rest and we're slower to rebound. Um, we've got time. We can just see if there's is there a little bit of what possible explanations there might be for that. What explanations there are for the rates kind of going down, coming back, staying where they are? It's not, a, not an easy answer, I imagine. So we'll put that in there. What other questions? What else have you talked about that could be framed as a question for the, for the room? Yes? More about trends in affordable housing. And specifically Section 8 housing. Great. Thank you, Georgia, for noting these. What else? Yes? So this isn't something that we, we talked about. That's okay. You grab it. All right. So, so I noticed at the beginning, you know, when we talked about um, rent prices right on the, the, the uh, or right by light the, the light rail. Yep. Um, so the art space loss rent starts, you know, it's like, what, 700 to 1,000? Okay. But all of our normal rent prices are Yes. Um, so if somebody makes more than a certain amount, then they're out of there anyway. But how does so how does that help? Um, or what what draws a person to that as opposed to uh, another a, rental? Yeah, a different rental that might okay. be more Thank you. That's great. So a really specific question about art space, those units, the place, what makes them particularly attractive or not, and how where that comes from, why they do it that way. So that's, that's a question that we'll put out there. What is another question? How, how about in, in this corner back here? Any, yes? Where Mesa is today and along the light rail, I, I, I just be curious from a, from a, a forum standpoint, what, what would be the strategy or recommendation for Mesa going forward as far as like affordable housing along that corridor versus market rate housing? Is there a suggestion based on what you see or what the data says? Or just make the right blend, or you know, what kind of approach would you take? This is a great question. What kind of recommendations would the folks up front give in terms of the relationship of affordable housing to market rate housing at this moment in Mesa looking forward? It's a great question. To join the back to questions, one more. Um, so we're wondering there, there might be a contradiction, maybe not, between the light rail coming in, you can't unsee it now that the, the light rail is coming through and it's expanding, and yet the doesn't seem to be doing anything to the, the rental rates or anything along the light rail. Mm -hmm. Those two pieces, those two data points, is it a lag and it's going to catch up or you know, is, it, is it working in some areas in the valley and not working here? We're just curious mm -hmm. as to why those yep. don't seem to be in competition. Relationship with what you can't unsee and stagnancy of rates and what's going on there. Were there anyone else burning with one? That, yes? So maybe to kind of piggyback because we're in the same group, I'll piggyback on my group member. What can we do at a community 
the people in this room, we're not necessarily all of us cities or anybody, any leadership areas, all of us are thought with. So what do we do to help with all of this? Like what's our practical day to day? I wake up tomorrow morning, what do I do to help housing in Minnesota? It's a great question. So if someone doesn't see themselves as an elected official or with a certain kind of influence or power, how do you get up and be an effective uh, ally activist around these issues in your community? Such a great question. Um, okay, I'm, I'm gonna hold there for a moment, uh, and I just wanna note that I hear threads, of course, around affordable housing. I hear threads around an equitable framework. I hear threads around the relationship between um, uh, market level and affordable housing and those distinctions. Uh, are there any threads that any of you sort of want to say, well, I'm, I'm hearing this and I could respond a little bit to that. And I'll say that um, I'm not going to time you, but we'll try to be brief so we can get to a bunch of different responses. Okay. So who's got a thought? Do you want to take on the rent stuff? So taking on the rent thing. Um, you know, the, so when you look at this, you can't look at just the the statistics, those, those little points on the map, right? You've got to understand what the influences are in, in the marketplace. And there are a lot of things that influence location and pricing. And although the light rail was put in, there were other things that were more powerful um, factors of concentration that were occurring. Um, not the least of which is the retail development, Tempe Marketplace, the River, Mesa River, the Cubs Stadium. You cannot um, ignore the influence of ASU and what is going on in Tempe along, along that corridor there. The 101 is a barrier. There's absolutely no doubt about it. And then you've got this other development that's occurring in downtown Mesa, which is causing a lot of attention, right? And so we're developing the metropolitan area in a series of nodes. We're developing an urban multinodal form. And it's, it's very obvious in the East Valley in particular. So this is interstitial space, right? And it's gonna catch up. But it's gonna take a while to catch up. Now, here's the, here's the difficult thing that the gentleman was talking about what the city of Mesa can do and about affordable housing and all those other things, is we, in, in this state in, in particular, we have, um, in this country, we have the best defined, best protected, um, and um, most uh, identified property rights, okay, of any place in the world. And those, those property rights cause this dynamic tension between what communities need and want, right, and what the market wants and what somebody with their private property has a right to do. And that's why, so to your point about role of government is really important, so I think the way that government is most effective is to offer incentives. Because the market will respond to incentives that deal with things that would otherwise not be feasible. And affordable housing is one of those, and in, in the ability to develop all types of housing depends on the ability of jurisdictions to create incentives. And, and please don't think that simply because you get LIHTC housing that you're good forever. It lasts 15 years, and if the market's improved, they're flipping it, right? And you're going to have this issue of displacement. 
The good news, I think, for this part of Mesa is it hasn't been that affected by the light rail yet, and you have an opportunity to do the things now which will put in place diverse housing and diverse services through incentives. I want to, first I want to say thank you. That felt like a, a really great response to a lot of things that have come up. But I just want to highlight one thing you said that I know I'm going to be thinking about, that because of our incredibly strong property rights here, there is an ongoing tension between what a community wants and needs and what the market wants. I just feel like that's, that feels very central to a lot of what we're talking about. And in terms of the community? Just, real, just very briefly, in terms of the community, there's, there's, a, there's a power issue there, right? Developers in the city, they have a relationship. I'm not going to say they're pals because it, it waxes and wanes. But there's an established relationship. Citizens need to establish their place at the table in order to get, in order to get some progress and to get more, a more varied voice in there. Does that make sense? It does. Well, Deirdre answers the next question. Could you think for a bit, John, about in response to this question? Yes. Yeah. How does how does a member of the community establish a relationship that uh, somehow bears some proportional response to the developer city relationship? Stay in this group. Stay in Rail Mason. Right. Mm -hmm. you, right. you have to have an organized voice. Yeah. Yep. Right. So I just want one thing before Deirdre says something, and and that is real estate exists is is at the nexus between critical social issues and business. And, and it's important that we understand the basics of the business of real estate so that we can deal effectively with those social needs, right, in, in a way that makes sense. Every single thing we do is a public-private partnership because we seek rezonings, we seek other kinds of entitlements. We seek building permits, we seek waivers, we seek all those things. It's a public-private partnership. How the city decides to deal with the public side of that in understanding the nexus that real estate exists at is what's important. Wow, okay. <laughs> um, well, so I, I want to uh, just address a few things. So first of all, the question of the light rail coming in. I mean, I'll just, I don't know the dynamics in West Mesa like Mark does, but um, generally the research shows that when light rail investment comes in, that property values tend to go up over time. So, you know, the majority, in the majority of places, property values end up going up over time. Um, so the, the question is kind of a timing thing, you know, for, for West Mesa. Um, but what, what we should think about is, you know, with this on the horizon, how, I'm gonna go back to the question of the equitable community. You know, how can we go about creating an equitable community out, out of the investment that's gonna come into your community? Um, so what does an equitable community mean to me? It's a place where um, long-term residents are able to stay over time, but newcomers are able to move in. And for me, an equitable community actually has diverse tenures and diverse kinds of housing in it. And it's because we, if we just have a single-family home community where everyone owns their own home, um, it doesn't allow people to stay actually over time because when you raise your children there and they go to ASU and they take out a lot of debt to go to college and they come out with tons of debt, they're not going to be able to afford to buy a home in your community. They're going to need to rent, a, rent an apartment. And does that apartment exist in your community? Um, you know, so it's just an example of how you know, we need diverse housing not to, to you know, bring strangers into our... Diverse housing doesn't bring strangers into your community necessarily, but it's a way to keep your community together over time and those social networks together that we need to thrive. Um, though just the last thing I'll say, um, so there's a question about Section 8 housing and trends in Section 8 housing. Um, and it's, it's worrisome. Um, you know, we, we're seeing wait lists for Section 8 housing reaching 
um, you know, all-time highs right now, and this is in part coming, you know, um, in you know, happening because of the growing affordability, rental affordability crisis that we have in the Valley, not just here, but also all over the country. Um, and there's a big question about, you know, funds for Section 8 in the future, you know, whether we're going to have them because of what's happening in Washington. And I'll just say a very small proportion of people who are eligible to receive Section 8 housing actually get it. It's like winning the lottery to get Section 8 housing. Um, and then, I guess the last thing I'll say, just related to Section 8 housing, usually when we think in terms of low-income housing, housing where low-income people live, we think in terms of publicly subsidized housing in some ways. So Section 8, I know David talks a lot about LIHTC, uh, the Low-Income Housing Tax Credit Program, but actually most low-income people live in the private market in small, you know, two to four unit, um, you know, rental buildings. And so we need to think a little broader when we think about housing for low-income people beyond just the public subsidies. I'm going to ask John a question here as we start to get close to our, to our wrap-up. Um, I'm going to come back to health, which we've been talking about in a lot of different mm -hmm. ways, and this question again about um, an equitable framework. Mm -hmm. so, so here we are in Mesa, and the question was posed, what would an equitable framework for an equitable development look like in this city in the coming years? And I think you probably spend a lot of energy thinking about what equitable contexts look like in different sectors in relation to what you care about. It, it's it's fairly easy to express the equitable ideal. Uh, to realize it, I, I think the question you posed specifically was around metrics. To realize it and to measure it is, is actually proving to be uh, much more difficult. Uh, not enough energy has gone, has gone towards it. Uh, people understand conceptually what we need to do, I think. Some people do and, and others don't. And the group that hasn't been convinced yet wants to see the metrics before they do anything, right? It's the chicken egg problem. So, uh, but no, an equitable, an equitable community, um, you know, and, and, and don't confuse, by the way, equality with equity, all right? So equality is like everybody should have the same exact chance, but that just completely ignores the fact that not all of us are starting from the same place, right? And so, and so equity is giving people the chance they deserve relative to the position they're in. And that's really super duper important. Uh, I can't believe I just said super duper, but I did. Um, it's like asking every single person to ride the exact same bicycle, right? When somebody's this tall and somebody's this tall and somebody can't ride a bicycle at all because they're like, they're paralyzed, right? It's just a, that's equality, right? Equity is saying, oh, I'll give you the bike that you can pedal with your hands. I'll, I'll, I'll give you access to the bike that you can ride as a small child. And, and so an equitable community is one that that is welcoming, that, that is inclusive, that embraces diversity, and really truly understands why we should embrace these things. And we should embrace these things because it makes all of our lives richer and better. How do you incentivize an equitable community in a market-driven context? So I, I think, I think the, the answer to that is that you, there has to be a transformational shift in how we think about, about our communities. If we think it's all about the almighty dollar, we're never going to win. And it's, just, you know, it's the same problem in healthcare. We spent $3.4 trillion a year on healthcare, and we are 37th in the world in life expectancy. Money is not the answer. Thinking differently is the answer. Uh, using the resources that we have, including money, differently is the answer. Somebody asked the question, how much affordable housing should we build? And the answer is as much as, as, as much of it as we damn well can, because we need it. Uh, look, extremely low income and low income and, and even moderate income families have an extreme shortage of housing. And they should not be shut out. Um, it, it, the, 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 
the upside potential of embracing equity is so huge, we don't even need to measure yet. We just need to get started. Thanks. I want to I want to come out to you in these in these last couple minutes, and then I'll come for any last thoughts. But I just wonder, not questions, but if anyone has a thought that they want to offer the panel or the room as we sort of move towards closing, something you're thinking about right now. Could be a question like, "Well, I'm even thinking about this," or "This is something I've heard tonight." So not so much a, a story in our last two or three minutes, but thought that you might have, something you put out in the room. Yeah? Why is there so little effort, at least from what I've observed, in order to help people who are renters become homeowners and start closing that gap in the income disparity and the other benefits of homeownership? So we won't answer that, and we'll say that question of why is there so little effort in helping folks who are renters move to homeowners and closing that income gap, housing gap disparity. What another just thought or thing someone wants to sort of put in the room in this conversation? I think we should put the focus on housing ownership because it, it provides us more stability. So if we provide another option, you know, maybe if you live mobile, you don't want to be saddled with a home uh, that you own. And so if we could do more to ensure stability of, of rental housing, mm -hmm. I think we'd be much better off. So what if we think about stability and quality across different ways of having homes and not just put all our energy onto ownership? Okay, thanks for offering that. Are there other thoughts? Yes, sir. Coach, you thought of um, living next door to an affordable housing. Uh, would that affect the value of my home? Is that, is that really, we have any studies that show that sometimes there's that concern Thank you for that. What are the dynamics of sort of home ownership next to affordable housing, uh, both in terms of the economics of that and the sort of the social aspects of that? Thanks for putting that in the conversation. Along the same lines, what, what effect does it have on those living in affordable housing when they're clustered with other affordable housing that they spread out throughout a, a wider community? What effect does it have when affordable housing is all clustered in one space as opposed to spread throughout a community of diverse housing options? Anyone else holding something before I come back here? Yes, sir. Well, I was thinking about the um, question that came up about rental rates along the White Rush. And, and I will say that I, I don't work with rentals, but with parking bays, and I've really specialized in the class who are running for three and a half years, and I've been hands on there. <clears throat> Kate Price Carolina has had the highest appreciation of any area in Phoenix. They were three from like this 13% appreciation. And so when you when you're talking about the individual property of rights, the rights because that's that's very fundamental of what's happening. You you know, you can talk about what you want in your community, but what it really boils down to is what some someone feels they pay for and, and, and invest in and, and their worth. And just in thinking about it, I don't think there were really um, apartments along rental units along the light rail of the Because once the value goes in, then that's what is, is this the financing part. 
to reference little insight into a very logistical, kind of pragmatic aspect of some of the conversation. Thank you for that. I want to know in our last minutes if anyone, it's like 30 seconds each just to kind of wrap this up. Have a thought as we close. Um, just a couple thoughts. First of all, um, you know, the question about affordable housing and affecting property values, you know, if affordable housing locates nearby. I mean, research shows that you know, when we're talking about multifamily housing and even um, subsidized housing, you know, it usually has no effect on property values. And in some cases, it can increase your property value if it's a really well-designed property and, you know, a new property coming in that um, is higher quality in some way than, than the surrounding. Um, the question about clustering affordable housing together, is that, you know, good or bad? Um, yeah, I mean, it's all about scale, you know. So, you know, putting, you know, affordable housing together, you know, a, I, you know, if you're talking about 100 units, you know, in a, a neighborhood that has um, 100 homes, I mean, you know, that's not something that, uh, that, that could be a win-win situation. We don't want to see, you know, vast landscapes of, of affordable housing all together in the same place um, because research does show that there's detrimental effects on schools when you concentrate poverty together, schools and other aspects of life. Thanks, Diversity. Yeah, that's what I was trying to say, yeah, basically. We need diversity. diversity. <laughs> we, we need diversity. Um, so my, my, I guess my parting thought is, um, you know, what do you do about all of this? Where are you right now? You have to take where you are right now as your starting point. And communities have various kinds of capital. Neighborhoods, uh, cities, regions have various kinds of capital. Um, social capital, political capital, economic capital, financial capital, and then you've got what we call engineered capital, and that engineered capital is its real estate. And there, Lorenzo and I have talked about this, Lorenzo and his wife Kimber and I have talked about this, is you know, there is something to be said for communities investing in their own real estate, because by controlling it and owning it, right, you now are in a place that you can make the decisions that relate to serving the populations that you have and achieving those objectives you have. Creating a REIT that owns local real estate. Doing some of these things that give you control and therefore you become one of the market participants as opposed to reactionary. Um, and so I, I encourage communities to think big and bold about how you deal with these issues in such a way that you gain control over the situation in a positive way and allow diversity and these other things to be accomplished. Thank you. John, final thought. I think you're all here because you recognize that we need to change. And I think the question that we should be asking ourselves, both like John, I want to ask you this question, but also to the people you engage uh, who ask the questions, and a lot of the questions that came up are like, well, what if we do this, what will happen? Um, I would say ask yourself the question and ask the people you're engaging the question of what is it exactly that we're afraid of relative to doing the same thing we've been doing and getting the same results. We, I think we've proven that the models that we've been using for the last 50 years have their flaws, some of them very, very significant. And so it's hard for me to imagine that doing something new isn't going to produce something better. I think that's the way we should measure potential changes. Not by what impact is it going to have on what we have now, but on what impact we can have in the future that can make our communities a better place. Thank you, John. Uh, thank you, everyone, for coming tonight. Can we please thank our panelists?
That about wraps it up for the evening and our special podcast episode. Thank you for joining us for this important glimpse into the world of housing. We hope that it has given you a peek into the complexity of issues surrounding housing. We also hope that you'll join us at one of our upcoming meetings and get involved. You can find more information about the event at railmesa.org or the Facebook page for Rail Mesa. Main Street Mesa is also on Facebook and wherever you get your podcasts. Rail Mesa is a nonprofit community development organization dedicated to a stronger, better connected light rail corridor in Mesa. Founded in 2012, they continue to grow and support jobs, education, responsible development, and increased opportunities for our community. Thank you to our panelists, our great audience, and our wonderful moderator. Also, thank you to the Rail Board of Directors for supporting this event, and to Evit for hosting us, and to Kane for lending us his amazing audio recorder so we could capture the event and put it out as a podcast. And finally, thank you for listening. We hope to see you at one of our upcoming meetings here in Mesa 